Hello and welcome. This is the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup podcast, where we talk about the latest news and research from UC Santa Cruz. It's our first podcast of 2020. Can you believe? It's, I, I, it's, I almost can't believe it. <laughs> it's sort of... <laughs> it feels familiar. I don't know why. It's only January 21st. I mean, yes. that's not bad, is it, right? That's not bad. You know, I don't want people to bad. think that we're, we're slacking. We really... Yeah. We're trying to get you the juiciest, most shocking, amazing news. And so yeah. these things take time, right? There was a minor uh, equipment malfunction slash user error... Last which resulted week, in the entire podcast being erased. Which would have gotten you your podcast news far earlier, but... Um, but we're glad because we saved up for some juicier, more startling pieces of information that I think you're going to like. Yeah. All, including, can I preempt this? The, well, Kill, killer just, fish sticks. Let's just say there's a lot of killer stuff Including in here. fish sticks. And, and you're going to have to stick around. Sad dinosaur news. Okay. Yes. All right, Wait, what so, happened to the dinosaurs? Um... Well, they're not here anymore. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll find out why. That's the main thing. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, today we're going to go over a few news items from the past couple of weeks. I'm Gwen Jordanay, and I'm an editor for UC Santa Cruz News. I'm Dan White. I'm a writer for UC Santa Cruz News. And as I said, we're going to talk about the recent news from UC Santa Cruz, all of which you can find at news.ucsc.edu. All right. So let's dive in. I have to start with some sad news, unfortunately. A very important figure to our campus, Jack Baskin, an entrepreneur and major philanthropic supporter of UC Santa Cruz and the Santa Cruz community, died January 12th. He was 100, so he lived, he was blessed with many years. Baskin was an active supporter of engineering and other programs at UC Santa Cruz over several decades, providing advice to faculty and campus leaders, as well as generous financial support. His cornerstone gift helped launch UC Santa Cruz's Baskin School of Engineering in 1997. Baskin and his family have also supported many other programs at UCSC, including the Elena Baskin Visual Arts Center, the Institute of Marine Sciences, arts programs, endowed chairs, and scholarships. So they were everywhere with their generosity. It was amazing. The donations from Baskin and his foundation have amounted to more than $10 million. Wow, $10 million. That's amazing. So how long was Jack Baskin involved with UC Santa Cruz? Um, He started getting involved in the 1970s when founding chancellor Dean McHenry invited him to serve on the physical planning committee. He was a trustee of the UC, uh, UCSC Foundation for over 30 years, including two years as chair. From early on, he campaigned for a strong engineering presence on campus. He wanted UCSC to be a leader in engineering. But he also gave generously to assist families, children, and senior citizens in the Santa Cruz region through the Community Foundation of Santa Cruz County, which he helped establish, and other organizations. He gave time and donations to many local institutions, including Dominican Hospital, Cabrillo College, and Monterey Peninsula College. In 2008, he and his wife, Peggy Downs Baskin, established the the Peggy and Jack Baskin Foundation to provide financial support for gender equality and increased access to education for marginalized communities in Santa Cruz and Monterey counties. I didn't know that his connection to UCSC went back so many years from the beginning. That did Jack Baskin come from a wealthy background? No, in fact, he was the first in his family to attend college. 
His parents spoke no English when they immigrated to the United States from Russia in 1908. Yeah, amazing. He moved um, to Southern California in the late 1940s, where he worked as a general contractor and built a very successful development company. After moving to Palo Alto in 1967, he saw a need for quality, affordable housing in the region. His company built the first low-income housing center in San Francisco and thousands of apartments for low-income families and the elderly in the San Francisco and Monterey Bay areas. So what a generous soul in just every way. And I just want to say rest in peace, Jack Baskin, and rest assured that we'll never forget you and that your legacy will live on here at UC Santa Cruz. What a gift. And to be able to have a life where you get to leave such a lasting mark on an institution and help yeah. shape it in certain ways. Exactly. Amazing life. All right. Um, so last week I finally went and got a flu shot. Finally, you're playing with fire. I know. It was pretty oh, late. Yeah. But, but you I'm know. so glad that you did that, Gwen. I am That's too. Early, yeah, exactly. I'm glad I did too because the current flu season is shaping up to be particularly severe with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reporting 2,900 deaths from flu as of the end of December. Yikes! It's just a horrifyingly large number. And I actually, you mentioned this to me at one point, but I, I had no idea that the number was that high. I know. It's shocking. It's just... Uh... Yeah, I know. So vaccines give us some protection, but getting the flu vaccine every year can be a hassle, as as we as we know. I mean, I just couldn't get over to the doctor to get one until um, kind of late in the season, and lots of us just never get around to it. We're and, all busy. We all yeah, have too much to do. Exactly. In fact, the CDC estimates that only about thirty seven percent of the adult population got the flu vaccine in twenty eighteen, which was a decline from previous years. And, you know, you're right, it is, it can be a total pain to go in and find the time to get vaccinated. I know. But I always want to know is what we can do about it to make well, the process easier. Yeah. So what if people only really needed to be vaccinated once to receive many years of protection? Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be really amazing. I yeah. I, yeah, you wouldn't have to schlep over to the doctor or the clinic or the uh, minute clinic or the drugstore, wherever you usually go. This type of universal vaccine is what Rebecca Du Bois, assistant professor of biomolecular engineering at UCSC's Baskin School of Engineering. See right there? We're recalling Jack Baskin. Already. I know. Anyway, that type of universal vaccine is what Professor Du Bois calls the holy grail for influenza, and it may be closer than you think. Du Bois is part of the Center for Influenza Virus Research for High-Risk Populations, a research group led by the University of Georgia that is working to develop a universal flu vaccine. The center is part of a new program funded by the National Institutes of Health. The University of Georgia has received an initial award of up to $130 million, and Du Bois' role on the project got an, addition, got an initial $1.5 million sub-award. So how would a universal vaccine work? Okay, so the previous method of creating vaccines required using strains of the virus that existed in nature and were always evolving. But with the recent development of vaccines that are made in lab cultures rather than with the viruses themselves, researchers believe that it's now possible to build a so-called 
rational vaccine, one that's engineered based on an understanding of how vaccines work on a molecular and immunological level, as opposed to one that simply uses inactivated or weakened strains of an existing virus. They can engineer antigens that contain mixed and matched parts from different virus strains, um, Du Bois says. Getting the flu is awful for many of us, but for some people it can be dangerous and even deadly. Du Bois hopes the work she's doing will help protect these more vulnerable populations. Elderly people, obese people, pregnant women, children, and people with health problems resulting in immunodeficiency have the highest risk of developing severe influenza disease. So making a vaccine that provides improved protection for a longer period of time would be great, she says. And I say, heck yeah. I say too, I mean, to take it also away from having to make the time to do this. Right. It's a paradigm shift because the way they're putting this together is just completely different from the way vaccines have been. I know. I know. They're rethinking it. Exactly. And it's great. So I, I know I I will be very excited if that comes to be. Okay. And now from vaccines to another topic that many of us are concerned about killer asteroids. Oh no. A burning question low these millions of years has been, did volcanoes kill the dinosaurs or was it an asteroid collision? I wonder about this every day. I know. It occupies many of my thoughts as well. New evidence by an international team of researchers, including some of our own at UC Santa Cruz, indicates that volcanic activity did not play a direct role in the mass extinction event that killed the dinosaurs. It was all about the asteroid impact. Oh, okay, but is that um, is that different from what other studies have said in the past? Yeah, so in a break from a number of other recent studies, the researchers argue that environmental impacts from massive volcanic, volcanic eruptions in present-day India happened well before the extinction event 66 million years ago and therefore did not contribute to the mass extinction. With high-fidelity records, researchers can now see that changes in climate from volcano eruptions were more or less over by the time of the event, said co-author James Zakos, professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences here at UC Santa Cruz. Most Most scientists acknowledge that the mass extinction event occurred after an asteroid slammed into Earth. Some research has, researchers have also focused on the role of volcanoes in the extinction because of indications that volcanic activity happened around the same time. But the recent studies researchers concluded that most of the volcanic gas release happened well before the asteroid impact and that the asteroid was the sole driver of extinction. So question answered, boom. That's kind of amazing because how many sci-fi movies have you seen where there have been volcanoes blowing up and getting the dinosaurs. Seems like mm, no, I have Jurassic. not seen one single. Oh, well, <laughs> lucky you. There's a real cheesy Jurassic <laughs> World installment where there's volcanoes blowing oh. up and getting some of the dinosaurs. Oh, my God. Hollywood was wrong? For once. Yeah. I can't believe it. Incredible. Okay. Um, all right. Well, now that that burning question has been answered and uh, it's all settled, that's it for me. What's on your news radar, Dan? Well, there's so much. Yeah. No fish sticks, but I'll get okay. to that in a second. All right. Uh, Chicon X artists have been kept out of displays unfairly at American art museums for way too long. Mm. 
Uh, in the past, those artists just weren't getting anything close to the recognition they deserve for their groundbreaking art. But now, slowly and surely, they have been making headway into the museums that once refused them. And now I'm very pleased to announce that uh, UC Santa Cruz professor's book about Shikanex art is making a big splash in furthering awareness of the of this phenomenon. In fact, Chicano and Chicana Art, a critical anthology, this is a diverse collection of essays, uh, is edited by UC Santa Cruz History of Art and Visual Culture professor Jennifer Gonzalez, and it's been hailed hmm. as one of the best art books of the decade by uh, Art News, which is a wow. very influential, widely circulated art magazine that spans 124 countries, includes collectors, dealers, historians, artists, museum directors, curators, and connoisseurs. (laughs) Uh, Chicano and Chicana Art, a critical anthology, presents an overview of the history and theory of Chicano and Chicana art from the 1960s all the way to the mid-2000s, and I can't think of a better place to begin if you're seeking a thoughtful introduction to this wonderful and vital tradition of art. The book is comprised of thematically organized essays by leading scholars tracing the development of Chicano and Chicana art from its early role in the Chicago, Chicano, so sorry, civil <laughs> rights movement to its mainstream acceptance in American art institutions. Now, Gonzalez served as chief editor for the 552 book, which was published in February 2019 by Duke University Press. Well, that is fabulous news for Professor Gonzalez and for Chicanx art. Um, so what kind of impact do you think this book will have, especially in light of this recent prestigious award? Well, I really think this book could bring about a wider awareness and appreciation for Chicanx art uh, because it's getting mm-hmm. so much exposure. As Gonzalez noted mm-hmm. in the book's introduction, we hope this anthology will draw the interest of students of Chicana and Chicano history and culture, as well as art theorists, individual studies scholars who practice in a field that has, until relatively recently, generally ignored the contributions of Chicano mm. and Chicana artists to American and contemporary art history. And I sure hope that Excellent. this book fills in that gap. Me too. Sounds good. And in other news, uh, UC Santa Cruz has received a great big gift, $1 million. It will go towards the prestigious Lick Observatory uh, way up over San Jose. Gwen, have you ever traveled out to the Lick Observatory? No. Um, I'm afraid of getting car sick. But... You know, it's curvy road. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm sure it'd be fine. I should I go out there. there. There are coyotes. It was real. It was hawks. Cool. It was another world. But uh, you drive over to San Jose and you go up a beautiful and kind of windy road. But you know, it's well worth the effort. And folks, now it'll be even more so because that million dollars establishes the William Wallace Campbell Director's Fund for Lick Observatory <laughs> in the University of California Observatories. Now, the gift honors the memory of a really remarkable, ahead-of-his-time uh, person, William Wallace Campbell, who served as the third director of Lick Observatory from 1901 to 1930. In fact, this gift was made by one of his granddaughters. Now, Campbell also served as president of the University of California from 1923 to 1930 and as president of the National Academy of Sciences from 1931 to 1935. It just goes to show how human lives can really change over time, too. Yeah. Um, t- when did Mr. Campbell become interested in astronomy? It's interesting. Uh, he That didn't happen in childhood, as it often can happen with people who are kind of early adopters mm-hmm. of the sciences. The interest seems to have really peaked, uh, evolved over time. He was born in a farm in Hancock County, Ohio, in 1862, and he finally got interested in astronomy as an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, where he earned his B.S. in 1886. 
Uh, Lick Observatory, by the way, began operations in 1888. I had no <laughs> idea it was so Wow. Old. I didn't either. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> it's about 100 years older than I thought it was. <laughs> Anyhow, he's a pioneer of astronomical spectroscopy, which you don't want to ask me about. Mm -hmm. And he's uh, spent decades measuring the radial velocities of stars. Hmm. And uh, now it is time to move on to killer fish sticks. Okay. Um, now, uh, fish sticks may be tasty or not so tasty for your dinner. <laughs> I'm going to have got some opinions about that. But the question is, ladies and gentlemen, are they good mm. for the planet? And I've never thought about whether they're good for the planet. Right. A new study of the climate impacts of seafood products reveals that the processing of Alaskan pollock, it's a big ingredient in fish sticks, mm -hmm. immigration, imitation crab and fish fillet, generate significant greenhouse gas emissions. No. Well, that's alarming since I personally enjoy a fish stick or two here and there. Um, so what is it about fish sticks and the, and the fake crab stuff that would cause so many problems? I know, Gwen. It's just an odd story. <laughs> yeah. It shouldn't be harmful. <laughs> you know? But here, here's the reason, according to the study. Okay. Now, these fish-based foods are, surprise, surprise, Highly processed, as mm. you know, right? Yeah. Uh, and apparently, it's, it's the post-catch processing that generates the problem. Because that the, the process of these foods generates nearly twice the emissions produced by the act of fishing these things themselves. Which is typically mm. where the analysis of the climate impact of seafood ends. According to the findings by researchers at the University of California, Santa Cruz... Now, the food system is a significant source of global greenhouse gas emissions, and Alaskan pollock is one of the biggest fisheries in the world. Uh, this, according to uh, Brandon McEwen, a postdoctoral researcher in environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz, these findings highlight the need to take a comprehensive approach to analyzing the climate impacts of the food sector. Hmm. Now, she's the lead author of a brand new paper that appears online in the journal Elementa. Science of the Anthropocene, and if you don't know, the Anthropocene is just basically a um, description of a climate era in which climate in nature is basically dictated by humankind. <laughs> uh, titled Climate Forcing by Battered and Breaded Fillets and Crab-Flavored Sticks <laughs> from Alaskan Pollock. You know what? That's the best title it's ever. It's just the most catchy title ever. <laughs> Two more fish sticks. You could have shortened it. I guess with a super scientific journal, you need to be more kind of... Yeah. But the paper takes a detailed, comprehensive look at the climate impact of the seafood supply chain. Now, this stuff, Alaskan Pollock, is sold as fillets and trim pieces that are used to make products like fish sticks and imitation crab. Now, um, unlike previous studies that have largely overlooked this downstream processing activities associated with Pollock... The study examines all the components of the supply chain from fishing all the way to the time when this gets to your retail supply case and when Gwen and I sometimes buy and eat fish sticks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry to uh, inform you all that fish sticks can be problematic. Well, it's good to know, though, it's, so we can make better choices when we're standing there at Trader Joe's. Looking at the fish sticks. <laughs> I feel like, I don't mean to... To put your memory on the spot, but I feel like we recently had a podcast where there was some unexpected impact of some homely food or something. Now, what, what? It was tuna in tuna. the dining halls. Oh, yeah. 
I'm sorry to, to, to be a bearer of bad fish stick news. Know. You're always a bummer, Dan. I always. Know. Do you know what I bet is next is baloney. <laughs> That's what baloney is like flammable. And people will spontaneously combust. Oh well, um, I think that's it for this time. Yeah. Next time, we will have um, perhaps more hor- foods. horrible food news. Yeah. You never know. Um, I sure hope not. Hopefully yeah. we'll have some good news. Okay, so that's it for this time. It's good, as always, to have you with us along on the ride, and we'll see you next time. See you all next time. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.